Well, hi, Praxis. Thanks for tuning in. It really does mean a lot uh, because we know meeting online adds another layer of complexity. It's a barrier. It's unideal. And so we really appreciate the fact that you're taking the time to fellowship with us, even virtually, not only for the sake of your own soul, but for the community of Praxis. And so on behalf of the leadership, uh, we're grateful. Uh, we're also grateful for the opportunity to continue our study in the book of First Peter. And so go ahead and open your Bibles there. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at verses uh, 7 to 11 in chapter 4. First uh, Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. I'll go ahead and read our passage and then we'll pray for our time. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pray. God, even as we left off on that last verse on such a high note, Lord, we pray that you would whittle any callousness of heart. Oh, Lord, that you would cause our hearts uh, to burn with fervor for our Lord and Savior as the scriptures are opened. Oh, Lord, that it would incline us to cling to you, to know that these words are profitable. Oh, Lord, that you have provided everything for life and godliness. And so, Lord, May we approach this time with joy, with eagerness, with humility, and may you use your word in a supernatural way to convict, to conform us into the image of Christ, that we might live lives that would honor you, lives that would be of eternal value, lives that would serve our King. And so be honored in this time. We ask that your spirit would guide us, that your word would be unleashed upon our hearts, gripping us and changing us. We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I had to guess, most of us wouldn't mind fast-forwarding through 2020. Uh, who would have known our favorite year would be filled with all sorts of unexpected things? You have a global pandemic forcing us to be sequestered in our homes. All sports suspended Jobs in jeopardy, plans canceled, loved ones lost, fears spreading. And as if things couldn't get worse, hey, throw in a tragedy to make it all the more combustible. The murder of George Floyd. Police brutality, racial tension, rioting, political confusion and vitriol. It's caused our nation to literally explode. Halfway through 2020, what else does this year hold in store? We think it can't get any worse, but at this point, we're just too scared to ask. And in these dark times, it's not surprising to me when I hear my wife say, half-jokingly, the world is ending, 
Jesus is returning. And there's a truth to that, but not because of the current state of affairs. That truth is true regardless of the times. It's just been brought to the forefront of our minds because of all the evils we see, all the brokenness we're experiencing. Yet as Christians, this reality and perspective is supposed to be lodged in our heads and in our hearts. In God's providence, our text for tonight is especially relevant. As suffering sojourners, Peter wants us to adopt a certain mindset by putting us in a certain time frame. He begins our passage by announcing the end of all things is at hand. One of the major tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is returning, his second advent. For Peter's readers, years have passed since Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And for us, thousands of years have passed. And as the days go by, the danger is in forgetting where we are in God's redemptive story. That he's still doing something. That he's pushing all of history towards a particular goal. And so Peter reminds us, the end of all things is at hand. According to scripture, there is nothing that prevents Christ from returning, from appearing suddenly to judge and to reign. Jesus is on the cusp of coming back. Now, before we try to pin down a precise day, we need to realize Peter's emphasis is not on drawing a red circle on our calendar. He's not interested in giving us date, time, and location. No one knows when Jesus will return. But the point is the real possibility. Think sequence. What's to come next? The final step until completion. The last domino is about to fall. There's one missing piece to the puzzle. Beloved, we stand on the edge of eternity. And rather shrinking back in fear, this truth is meant to fortify us, to comfort us. Oh, I mean, what a refuge for Peter's audience. Against the crashing waves of persecution and the intense suffering they were experiencing, they clung on to the fact that they knew the culmination of our hope and salvation is at the doorstep. Friends, the same for us. In the midst of these troubling times, in the grand scheme of eternity, it will only be a blink of an eye before we see Jesus face to face. And that should be the ultimate game changer. Nothing motivates like a finish line. Because Jesus can return at any moment, we need to be ready at all moments. Which is why Peter transitions in our text with a therefore. The apostle is drawing out all the application. This is a super practical passage. Since the end is at hand, Peter gives four exhortations. Four exhortations in light of Jesus' impending, imminent return. First, pray purposefully. Pray purposefully. Look again at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Two parts to stress one point. Self-controlled and sober-minded. It shows us how the end affects our thinking. You've seen apocalyptical movies where utter chaos breaks out. You know, people go crazy, they lose their heads. But Christians are to keep theirs. We're informed. We have God's conclusion, so we're calm and collected, exercising control over our behavior. We know the truth and how it all ends, so we're not panicking when the world is in turmoil. We're wise in how we spend our resources, our time. We pursue relationships and our careers, not obsessively, but in a reasonable fashion, with eyes set on the return of the king. And because we're constantly thinking about this reality, we're sober-minded. Peter uses the word sober deliberately. What did he just talk about in verse 3 of this chapter? Those without an eternal hope, will they indulge the flesh, living in the perpetual stupor of drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. And it makes sense, right? For unbelievers, all their thoughts are consumed with the now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. That's the end of their story, but not ours. Jesus is. Either through our death or at his coming, a reunion awaits. So we're different. Our thoughts extend beyond the grave. And where does this thinking work itself out the most? Well, in prayer. That's why Peter encourages us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Because praying when you're frazzled or inebriated is next to impossible. Instead, Jesus' return sobers us up. It lifts up the fog. Clear thinking produces purposeful prayer. Listen, if you knew Jesus was coming back in a couple hours... You wouldn't pass the time on YouTube or doing Sudoku. You would drop to your knees. The end not only compels you to pray, but tells you what to pray. If today was the last, you wouldn't be pleading for a new job or better health. You'd be pleading for the souls of your friends and family, for the perseverance of their faith or the gift of eternal life. But today... Many of our prayers come up too short simply because our gaze falls too short. Where we set our eyes is often what we say with our lips. Don't become so fixated with the temporary that you forsake the eternal. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for daily concerns or earthly matters. We can and should pray for good test results, for better living conditions. After all, Jesus prayed, give us our daily bread. But what comes before that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, our prayers should follow the contours of scripture. We should major on what the Bible majors on, not laying up treasures on earth, but in heaven. Not just begging for the healing of our bodies, but the salvation of souls. Not only for racial reconciliation, 
but ultimately divine reconciliation because Christ is coming. Our cries to God should sound different than the world's. So let me ask Praxis, what dominates your prayers? Is there any evidence of Jesus returning in your thinking, in your praying? Is the truth of God's word seeping into your mind until it molds and shapes your words? Which teaches us, so insightful, that you can trace the requests that leave your mouths back to what preoccupies your mind. The 11th hour sharpens our focus. Godly thinking will lead to godly living. And this takes place not only in our private prayers, but also in public relationships. In the remaining verses, Peter shifts to how the end transforms the community of believers. The second exhortation he gives to us is to love earnestly. Love earnestly, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the crowning jewel of a Christian. It's interwoven in all these remaining exhortations Peter provides. And we know the Bible is replete with this hallmark quality of divine love. Just one example, John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. The love of God poured into our hearts always splashes over to others around us. And in this verse, Peter is highlighting the intensity of this love. He says, love one another earnestly. What does this mean? Well, when you hit the gym and pump iron like I do, well, at least many decades ago, what happens? It's a miracle, right? Your muscles become taut. After doing some curls, your biceps are stretched to full capacity. Guess what? You are swole. That's the idea here. As Christians, our love should be flexed to maximum capacity. Our hearts should be pulled wide towards one another. Why? What's the motivation for such strenuous and sustained effort? Since love covers a multitude of sin. You see, you can't love someone from afar. You got to get up close and personal. Sure, with enough distance, anyone can look like a supermodel. But when you're next to a person, that's when you see their blemishes, their scars, their flaws. They aren't as pretty as before. But community requires proximity. It comes with the territory of intimacy. And yet that's when things can get pretty ugly and messy. But that's also where love enters in to cover a multitude of sins. Now, first, some qualifications. This covering has no atoning value. Peter is not talking about the vertical dimension in our standing before God. He exhorts us on the horizontal plane, loving one another. This covering also doesn't mean we just stay silent when we see someone in sin. We have other passages in scripture like Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 that tell us there are times where we need to gently admonish someone. But when it comes to sin, we are then left with only two options. 
we address it in love or we absorb it in love. We either overlook, disregard the wrong that's done to us or we forgive, speaking, admonishing to someone about the sins that they've committed against us. But both coverings are driven by love. A love stretched wide because it is always ready to forgive or to incur the cost, all to maintain fellowship and the witness of the gospel. So how do you discern? How do you discern what you are to do? Well, here are some questions to ask yourself. Is this sin committed intentional or incidental? Is it something habitual in their lives or is it an odd occurrence? There's a huge difference between someone pushing you, shoving you on purpose versus someone accidentally bumping into you. The first one needs to be addressed. The second one can probably be ignored, overlooked. Another set of questions. Is it urgent and harmful for the long run? Will it have severe consequences if left unaddressed? You know, as a dude, I don't know much about makeup. You know, I know there's foundation, brushes, colors, and other stuff. But I'm sure only a little is needed to cover up a pimple. On the other hand, no amount of makeup is going to make up for a missing tooth. You got to do something. You got to go to the dentist and go fast. Whatever the situation, we need a lot of humility, wisdom, and above all, love. You know, hang around Christians long enough and you're bound to get hurt. Someone will utter an insensitive comment or sin against you in a very serious way. And in that moment, you have the choice to snuff out sin or to allow it to fan to flame. Praxis, beware of sin's deadly potential. It only begets more sin. Gossip gives way to shouting. Bitterness poisons our perceptions until we rage and rattle with anger. Sin only knows how to escalate. But the best way to prevent a forest fire is to smother it when it's still small. And love does that. Either love dwarfs sin or sin dwarfs love. So whether we absorb a minor infraction or need to speak to and forgive a major offense, the governing element is the same. We do it all out of love. We want to restore our relationship so there's nothing between us. We want our relationship to be characterized by closeness and love instead of distance and wrongdoing. We want Christ to get the last word, not our egos. Look, if Jesus is returning, if Christ is on the horizon, it kills our pride. Because who are we? Who are we to hold something against someone that Christ no longer does? Instead, what does Jesus do? He loves us to the very end. In a day and age where our nation is divided, where people are split over everything and anything, earnest love is what will keep us together, what will hold the church fast. The third exhortation Peter has for us in light of Jesus' imminent return is show hospitality. Show hospitality, verse 9. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You could say the previous exhortation is love reactive. How to cover sin. How to react to wrongdoing. Peter's exhortation now is love proactive. And it takes on a special form. Hospitality. The word for hospitality is a compound of two words. Love and stranger. You see, in Christ, complete strangers are now brothers and sisters. The gospel brings us into a new family. We are to be known by this distinct divine love, a hospitality towards one another that makes it hard for the world to figure out if we've just met for the first time or we've been family for a lifetime. Why? Because it all looks the same. And that's the power of the gospel, of this divine love. Vertically, it restores rebels to God, making sinners saints. Horizontally, it restores foes and makes them friends. And better yet, strangers, family. When Peter charges us to show hospitality, he's merely telling us to live out the gospel, to put to practice the truths of this good news. That's why Peter pens these two little convicting words without grumbling. You know, it's easy to go through the motion, to have the shell of hospitality without the heart, to drag our feet in duty. But listen, the opposite of grumbling is not silence. The opposite of grumbling is gratitude. Gratitude. You know, in a fallen world, there is always something to complain about. But in the gospel, we find there's always something to be grateful of. And so we play it forward demonstrating our gratitude in acts of love, showing hospitality to others. And we need to understand how big hospitality was back in Peter's day. It was crucial for gospel mission. Remember, Peter's writing to the dispersion. Christians dispersed on the run, fleeing for their life, persecuted for their faith. There was no four seasons of Galatia to hide in or rest. Christians would have to house a brother fleeing for his life or a missionary journeying to another city to proclaim the gospel. Without hospitality, without the opening of homes, the gospel would not survive. The gospel does not go to the nations. The gospel does not reach us. Hospitality was also vital for gospel ministry. Back then, there was no chapel to meet in or a large warehouse to rent. Christians congregated in homes. Someone had to be willing to welcome others. Someone had to be hospitable so the family of God could gather to break bread, to sing praise, to fellowship over his word. Showing hospitality was indispensable both to gospel mission and ministry. And it's no different today. Now, we might try to excuse ourselves from Peter's exhortation. You know, we think since we live with our parents or because of the quarantine, well, people can't come over, so I'm off the hook. But look, hospitality has little to do with owning a home and more with being hospitable. It's less about a house and more 
about a heart. Here's the truth. If you think what hinders you from hospitality is keys to a property, you're misguided. One day when you're able to buy your own place and the escrow goes through, you aren't magically transformed on the spot into a hospitable person unless your heart is first transformed. You know, some of the least hospitable people reside in mansions with loads of land. But listen, the opposite is true. Some of the most hospitable people I know don't have their names on the deed to a house, but they have pooled all their resources to be a home to others, to express their love and warmth and welcome. It's the friend always down to drive people around. It's the guy who shows up early to set up and stays late to stack chairs. It's the girl willing to put herself out there to greet the newcomer or talk to the socially awkward. You can show hospitality without a home. I mean, if you think about it, what is the essence of hospitality? You are the host and others are your guests. And you serve them whatever the context you're in, with whatever you have at your disposal. That's why hospitable people aren't slowed or stopped by being sheltered in place. Unable to invite others to chill and talk? Shoot a text, call them to pray. Can't have people over for dinner? We'll drop something off or send a gift card and share a meal over Zoom. Our bodies may be restricted, but our hearts don't have to be. In this season where we can't meet face to face with one another, showing hospitality isn't impossible. It just requires us to be a little more creative, a little more thoughtful. And let this be a time of training now. So when restrictions are lifted or the Lord returns, we're found faithful in loving and serving one another. Which brings us to Peter's last exhortation. The apostle wraps up our passage by urging us to steward faithfully. Steward faithfully. Resuming in verse 10, he writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Did you catch the assumption the apostle makes? Peter assumes every Christian has received a gift. You see that in verse 10? Not if, but as. Gifting is not contingent on whether you have an official title in the church or the number of years you've walked with God. It's contingent on whether you are a child, a child of God. Every saint is entrusted with a spiritual gift. The question, therefore, isn't if you're gifted. The question is if you're a good steward, if you are using your gifts to bless and serve one another. Flip over to Ephesians 4 real fast. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, they say this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to, for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Practice who does the work of the ministry. 
who is responsible for building up the body of Christ. It's right there in the text. It's not exclusive to the leaders of the church. The work of the ministry is a community project. Saints using their spiritual gifts. I want you to consider the gravity of this. There are particular people at Lighthouse. God desires to grow in a particular way through a particular gift used by a particular steward. And they will be helped or hampered based on what you decide to do. Their maturity in the faith will either be stifled by your selfishness or encouraged by your faithfulness. Beloved, don't handicap the body of Christ. In God's house, there are no deadbeats. There is no individual too small, no gift too insignificant. The beautiful symphony suffers even from the absence of the tiny triangle's ring. God is the maestro, and in his orchestra, he has assigned a specific part for each and every Christian to play. We see how in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We'll stop there. You might have taken a spiritual gifts inventory growing up or one of those personality tests, all in hopes of learning more about yourself and discerning what gifts you might have. But in this verse, Peter isn't concerned with finding or identifying your gifts. He's much more interested in the doing, in using and serving. And I'd argue that the best way to discern gifting is to do, to serve. Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper or something that's displayed on your monitor, like, congratulations, you have the gift of administration. It's just theoretical at that point. I mean, you could take a 20-question survey to determine if you're right-handed or left. But the sure sign is when you pick up a baseball and throw it a few times and say, hey, look, the ball seems to go farther when I use my left hand. Maybe I am left-handed. And if you want to gauge what spiritual gifts God has entrusted to you, serve. Serve your heart out. You know, if you're gifted in something, for the most part, you'll be effective. You'll be affirmed. You don't tell someone that they're a talented musician if they're tone deaf. Gifts aren't curses. Gifts bless and encourage people. But the point is this, you'll never know unless you try. So try. And if it flops or people tell you, that was bad, I don't know, it's okay. God's grace gives us the freedom to make mistakes. Try again, maybe a couple more times. If it's still bad, God's grace is still there. But maybe it's time to move on and that's okay. It just means you're gifted in other ways. After all, in verse 10, Paul exhorts us to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Varied. Which means while we are united in the body of Christ, we're not all uniform. We're not all manufactured the same like if we're Christian robots. God's grace is so beautiful and deep, it must be displayed in a spectrum of colors. The manifold grace of God is manifested in a diversity of people, in a diversity of gifts. 
instead of listing them all out and giving us all the details, Peter only offers two broad categories here, speaking and serving. Or if you want, words and works, although I'm sure there's overlap. In fact, these two categories are so general, we'll likely be gifted in both to a certain degree. Speaking deals with preaching, teaching, words of encouragement, evangelism, or counseling, really anything that requires us to use words. It can take place at Bible study, in an email, during discipleship, behind a pulpit, or over coffee. And Peter says, when we serve one another with our speech, we're to do so in a specific manner, as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, I know that sounds spooky, but the apostle is communicating the weightiness of our words. That by our speech, we can offer grace or tear someone down. We can impart life or death. We can speak the truths of God or lies. Now, this doesn't mean like we can't relax and joke around. It doesn't mean we can only speak scripture to each other or you need to quote chapter and verse after everything you say. But your speech should operate out of a biblical framework. Your speech should submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your best words are those that echo and align with God's word. Serving is a catch-all net for actions that don't necessarily feature our words. It's the using of our body for the building up of the body. We do so with the strength that God supplies, pouring out our energy, time, and abilities in ways we normally wouldn't do. It could be employing your awesome Excel spreadsheet skills to coordinate events or plan budgets in ministry. It could be your friendly personality and free schedule allowing you to babysit for parents or catch up with more people than others. It could be how quickly you pick up new technologies and helping out with audio and video. I mean, right now, if you are watching this, I hope you realize this video is a labor of humble servants, faithfully stewarding their gifts and abilities behind scenes so that Christ can be seen, so that God can be glorified, which is the peak, the apex that Peter leaves us on. Look at how he finishes verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, what I find curious is that as Peter is teaching and teaching, exhorting us to action, he suddenly erupts in doxology, in praise, in glory given to God. He interrupts himself to worship. I mean, he's not even done with this letter, with this epistle. He still has a whole chapter to go, but that doesn't stop his soul from soaring in praise. I think we can learn from that. You know, in our theological conservative circles, we often hear the caution that our doctrine must end in doxology. And that's a good warning. Our knowledge of God should never be divorced from our worship of God. But the same, the same could be said of our practice, our praxis, if you will. That in everything, our theology, our thoughts, our actions, our service, they should all end in the same spot. 
from doctrine to deeds, it all culminates here in ringing this doxological note into the ages. Glory given to God through Jesus Christ. Johann Sebastian Bach is famous for concluding his manuscripts and musical scores with the three letters S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. What you might not know is that at the top, he wrote Yesu Yuva, which is Latin for Jesus help. Jesus help. Guys, this is Johann Super Composer Bach. He's penned masterpieces that we still play today, but he got it. The one who provides the power is the one who deserves the praise. And we do well to imitate Bach. Write it down from top to the bottom of our prayers, our love for one another, our hospitality, our speaking and our serving. Stamp it from the beginning of time until Christ returns and into eternity. Jesus, help. Jesus, help us live faithfully to the very end. And when it's all said and done, to God be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you sensitize our hearts to understand the weightiness of this truth that indeed the end is at hand. Christ could return at any second. May that be etched into our minds and seared upon our hearts that that it would shape and inform all that we do, that it would transform us to live in light of that truth that would mold our petitions Lord, it would cause us to sacrifice and love earnestly, to be generous in how we display hospitality towards one another and down to the minutia of how we speak and serve. Lord, may it all exalt Jesus Christ as glorious, as worthy of our adoration and our actions. Lord, we understand that one life, One life is all we have. One life will soon pass. And only what's done for Christ will last. And so God, help. Jesus, help that we might be found faithful with what has been entrusted to us for our good, for the building up of the body of Christ and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.